It is not good for man to be alone. I opened my laptop on the plane ride back from Kansas City on Monday so that I could check out the readings for this weekend. And when I saw the readings I had to talk about, I knew I had to preach about them, and so I closed the laptop and I went back to sleep. The church wants us to speak this weekend about marriage and divorce. And one of the criticisms that priests often get when they try to teach about either of these topics is that they can't adequately address the subject because priests are unmarried. So, rather than immediately diving into this topic, I thought it would be better to start with the first reading we have from the book of Genesis, which really sets the groundwork for our entire understanding of marriage. The Lord God says, It is not good for man to be alone. Humans are social animals. We are made to exist in and to desire community. And that innate desire is apparent to us, especially after two years of a global epidemic. Isolation, quarantine, social distancing, these words in themselves imply a deviation from a norm, which is community living. But more than mere interaction, humans desire friendship. At times, we try to use substitutes to true friendships, such as social media and pets. But while these satisfy part of our longing, in the end, each of us desires someone to see the world in the same way as us, to support us in our troubles and to become excited at the same things. The commonality of a shared friendship is what removes us from isolation, the feeling of having someone else who thinks alike. Even in a crowd of thousands, one can feel alone if, in the moment, if the moment isn't shared with at least one person who agrees with you. And so Adam, in Genesis, is considering all of the animals in the garden, but none of them are suitable for true friendship. Adam requires another human, another mind, another soul, and therefore God makes Eve. Now, friendship in itself is not strictly a Christian idea. The pagan philosopher Aristotle writes extensively on the topic of friendship in his Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle will give us three forms of friendship. Friendships of pleasure, friendships of utility, and true friendship. Now, in the first case, Aristotle explains that young people tend to move from friendship to friendship as their interests change. A friendship of pleasure understood in this capacity, is one that exists because the two friends enjoy some common activity or interest. For this reason, Aristotle states that young people are more apt to form friendships of pleasure. For instance, college students may befriend one another while living in the same dormitory because they enjoy the social atmosphere or they are able to study well together. But many of these friendships likewise will not endure past college, save maybe a yearly visit or a call for some event such as a marriage or a funeral. Now, friendships of utility are those bonds which are formed because one friend is able to provide some necessary service to the other. Aristotle says that there are, these are more common in the elderly. An elderly person may befriend a nurse or a doctor or a worker in a retirement facility. But apart from the time when they are engaged with that person directly, maybe at the hair salon or whatever it is, that friendship doesn't last. But true friendship is that where the two friends both wish the good of the other. 
Aristotle says that these relationships are rare and they take time because they require that both parties love one another and trust one another. Now, many people, he says, are candidates for true friendship because often there is a desire for friendship towards many people in our life. But only those that we begin to love can become true friends. And as Aristotle explains, these friendships will endure by the measure that together the two friends fall in love with what he calls the transcendent third. In other words, the friendships will last and grow stronger if the two friends mutually love a common good, which is greater than both of them. So, why discuss friendship? Am I just avoiding the topic of marriage? No, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us that friendship is the highest form of earthly love. I think that's interesting. Friendship, the highest form of earthly love. Marriage is the sacramentalization of a friendship. When a man and a woman unite themselves in marriage, they are uniting themselves in a mutual covenant of love. But when two baptized Christians make this commitment, the transcendent good in which they are united is the love of God which is the most enduring and perfect form of love because God is love. Now, the entire story of sacred scripture is a retelling of God's unwavering love for his people. No matter what evil is done by his people, God never forsakes them. Rather, God again and again and again prepares another path to reunite us with himself, and we should be grateful for that, right? Scripture frames the relationship between God and his people in terms of a marriage. The entirety of the Bible will culminate in the revelation of St. John with the image of Jesus marrying the new Jerusalem, which is the church. So listen to the language in the Old Testament, the covenant with Noah. God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature. Or to Abraham, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant. Or speaking of the covenant with Moses, God says, I will never break my covenant with you. The promise of God's love for his people is irrevocable, thank God. Otherwise, after thousands of years of failings, all of us would be hopeless because each of us have broken the covenant again and again by our sins, by choosing to adulterate ourselves with the created world and give our love to earthly things. But God never speaks falsely. He has promised us an eternal relationship of love which we cannot break even through sin. Though we can reject the love of God and turn from him and even reject his love eternally, God has not denied us the ability to return to him now in this life through sacramental confession. He isn't setting hoops for us to jump through so that we can return to the covenant. All we have to do is ask because he does not break it. So when a man and a woman enter into a covenant of love, God expects that the words they say have meaning, like his words. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish you until death do us part.
Now, that statement is so easily remembered by society, right? You could ask a second grader what the marriage vows are, and they could recite them to you. We so easily remember the words, and there's no room for misinterpretation in them. There's no clause in those lines which allow someone to break that covenant. The words of the marital vows are precisely designed to prevent that opportunity. They are meant to be lifelong. And God accepts the full import of their meaning when the spouses exchange them. A marriage, therefore, is the solemn ratification and consecration of a true friendship so that it cannot be broken. That's the point, right? That's why you get married. Because true friendship isn't one that's based on pleasure or utility. It's not a mutual gain or mutual enjoyment. True friendship only comes out of the love of the other and out of a desire for the good of the other over the good of the self. Thus, St. Paul in his epistle to the Corinthians explains that spouses belong to one another. They are no longer living for themselves, but for the other. So when the church will issue a declaration of nullity, what people call an annulment, the church is not attempting to say that a marriage that once existed is now over, that the spouses are now divorced, because she cannot do that. God has not given the church authority over marriage because he has not given it authority over his love. Rather, the church will study the relationship and makes a determination if a true covenant was ever formed. Perhaps we can stretch the language of Aristotle here. The church is making a determination whether there was a true friendship or if the relationship was instead one that was built purely on utility or on pleasure. Did the couple truly intend when they said the vows? Did they know the person they were marrying? Were they mature enough in their understanding of marriage to understand what they were doing? Now, these are big questions. And so the process of granting an annulment is time-consuming. You know, it, it usually frustrates people. But it's dealing with a significant question. Did the couple create a covenant with each other and with God or not? And this is sometimes a painful process. I understand that because the matters which lead to civil divorce are painful. But the goal of the church in each of these cases is to bring peace to those involved, to find a way forward for them, and most importantly, to let them grow in holiness. Because in all of these situations, in marriage, in my vocations as a priest, in all our vocations, God is moving us toward a greater closeness with him until the day comes that we can be with him forever. It's always about eternity. Our lived experience now is full of brokenness because we are not yet in heaven, but it is also full of joy. I think that's something we need to reflect on is is every time we have to talk about marriage in the church, it's like it's a bad thing. It's not, right? I mean, hopefully some of you experience joy in your marriage, right? It's a a beautiful thing, a, a wonderful thing. And we live in a society that's turning it in to a bad word, right? God desires that the covenant of marriage today be one of joy, which motivates the spouses to bring each other to holiness. If the unifying factor of a true friendship is the mutual desiring of the good of the other, then what unifies a sacramental marriage is the mutual desire for the salvation 
of the other. As Aristotle said, a friendship will endure by the measure that the two together will fall in love with a transcendent good, right? For marriage to endure through whatever troubles the world may send it, the couple has to, in all things, work for the ultimate good of each other, which is for their salvation, because there is no greater good than Jesus Christ. Praised be Jesus Christ, now and forever.